Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 26 for August 3, 2017. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. Lone wolves have no tails, as it were. There's no logistical tail to interdict. They're much more harder to predict. Their ability to overwhelm, preoccupy, and distract law enforcement and intelligence and security services is enormous. That's Georgetown professor and terrorism scholar Bruce Hoffman, who spoke at an institute forum on July 31. Although terror attacks conducted by individuals are not a new phenomenon, recent years have seen an alarming increase in these so-called lone wolf incidents. The Islamic State, for instance, has been proactive in using its global tentacles to inspire individuals to carry out attacks in its name. Meanwhile, in Israel, Solo operators, unaffiliated with organized terror groups, have taken to carrying out attacks with the weapons at hand. Cars, knives, homemade implements. Are such attacks a growing trend and the future of jihadist terror? Or are they simply yet another passing fad in the annals of terrorist activity? To discuss this phenomenon, the Washington Institute hosted a policy forum on July 31 with Boaz Ganor, Bruce Hoffman, Marlene Mazel, and Matthew Levitt. We'll hear their remarks in the order in which they spoke. After this, this is Kate Bauer, Senior Fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Washington Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting the policies to secure them. Find all of our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute. First, we'll hear from Boaz Ganor. He is the Associate Dean of the Lauder School of Government and Executive Director of the International Institute for Counterterrorism at the Interdisciplinary Center, Herzliya. I uh, would like to open with trying to allocate where is the phenomenon of the lone wolf um, stand among the overall uh, different types of terrorist attacks altogether. So let me start by classification, and I will start by classif classifying uh, different perpetrators of terrorism. And the first type is the one that we are discussing about today. I call this the personal initiative attack. It's more known under the title of the lone wolf attacker. Now, who's the lone wolf? The lone wolf is an individual that have been radicalized uh, by this or the other source. And one day, after being radicalized, he decided he wants to do something about it. He has two options. One option is actually to join a terrorist organization, maybe even to fly as a foreign fighter uh, to Syria or to Iraq. And the other option is to become a homegrown terrorist and to conduct a terrorist attack uh, in the territory that he's living in. This is the lone wolf attacker. The lone wolf attacker is being inspired by a terrorist organization. Uh, many scholars today question the, the fact that he's alone wolf altogether because uh, always, almost always, there is some connection to a terrorist organization, at least inspiration, which is being uh, uh, done by a terrorist organization. And I would say that still I would use the term a lone wolf because the lone wolf being inspired by a terrorist organization doesn't have any operational ties with the terrorist organization, meaning the terrorist organization is not necessarily involved in the initiation, in the planning, in the preparation, and the execution of the attack altogether. The second type of perpetrators is what I call the independent network. The independent network practically is a bunch of lone wolves, a group of lone wolves. Now, this group, usually very small group, two, three, four, five people all together. Usually we are talking about peers or friends or in some cases family members. I uh, took the example of the San Bernardino husband and a wife. This is an independent network. Why it uh, uh, a group of lone wolves? Because, again, it's an inspiration attack and not without involvement of a terror, a operational involvement of a terrorist organization. They are being inspired by, if, by the way, if you would ask them before or after the attack, they would refer to themselves as activists of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or whoever. And after the attack, most probably the terrorist organization will take responsibility for what they do, but still they are lone wolf or lone network because they do not have any operational ties with the terrorist organization, only being inspired. The third type of terrorist at, uh, attacks is what I refer as organized terrorism, either sleeper cells or in, uh, infiltrated cells. Here, this is a different board game altogether. Here we are talking about a group, a cell, could be, by, by the way, even an individual in some cases, that have been recruited to a terrorist organization, trained, 
Uh, and the terrorist organization is involved in all of the operational uh, uh, background and activities uh, that launch at the end of the day this attack. I have good news and bad news when I compare the lone wolf attack to the organized terrorism. The good news is that usually lone wolf attacks are not that lethal. Um, the number of casualties is quite limited. Of course, there are exceptions. Nice, for example, was an exception. But in most cases, how many people can be hurt with a lone wolf attack? Most of the attacks of the lone wolf, the majority of the attacks are using cold weapon. It's either a knife or an axe or rundown or whatever. Some cases they are using light weapon. Very seldom they use uh, explosive device. But uh, uh, when we are talking about this phenomenon, it's limited. The number of casualties are quite limited altogether. When we compare that to the organized terrorism, the organized cells uh, conducted recently a uh, uh, Bataclan attack in Paris, uh, uh, um, the attack in Zaventam, the airport of Belgium, or, or the airport of uh, Istanbul, 9-11, is organized terrorism. Those are mass casualties attacks altogether. So that's the good news in reference to the lone wolf. The bad news, and I'm using past terms here, uh, I'll explain in a minute why, we used to believe that intelligence is incapable of dealing with this phenomenon of lone wolf. Why? Because intelligence, traditional intelligence, human and comment, human sources intelligence and communication intelligence, is based on what? Is based on the fact that there is some kind of a discourse between at least two people that share a secret, the secret of what they're planning to attack. Either you have an agent who's telling you that, or you have the ability to wiretap and to listen to their conversation. But there is a need for a conversation. In the lone wolf, in most cases of the lone wolf, there is no conversation. Everything starts and ends with the sick mind of one person. So intelligence seems to be useless in this regard. I emphasize seems to be. Today we think differently in this regard. Now, going back to uh, another classification, the classification of the terrorist attacks. I would suggest, I don't have enough time to drill into it, but I would suggest to have two scales in our mind when we are trying to classify different types of terrorist attacks altogether. One scale has to do with the level of involvement of the terrorist organization in the attack, starting with no involvement uh, whatsoever, ending with full uh, organized terrorist attack uh, uh, by a terrorist organization. The other scale would be the level of independence of the attacker, meaning is, really, is he really independent or did he share a secret with, uh, with his uh, uh, friends or, uh, or, or other peers? Uh, did he consult with anybody? Did he have any uh, uh, um, uh, accomplices uh, that gave him passive support or active support? Uh, does he, does he uh, conduct the attack with others, like a, uh, um, an independent network, and so on and so forth? Once we have those two scales, we can go back to the classification that we had before and see how lone wolves, uh, local initiative attacks, and organized terrorism fall into that scale. And, and then we can uh, judge which attack what type of attack was uh, conducted at that time. Why it's important, it's not just theoretical discussion. It's important because, of course, you need to behave differently. You need to have different operational counterterrorism activities in reference to lone wolves, uh, local network, and organized terrorism altogether. Now let's zoom in on the, the subject matter of the lone wolf. When we're talking about the lone wolf attack, usually they conduct uh, cold weapon attacks, Sabotage, stoning, Molotov cocktail, stabbing, running down. In Israel, we had also bulldozing. It's a running down with a bulldozer. But also, as I said, in some cases, shooting and IED bombings altogether. One exception. Suicide attacks were not conducted by lone wolves. Of course, we need to define the term suicide attack. The, the way that I describe suicide attack is the, the type of the person who's strapping himself with a suicide belt, uh, or carrying explosive device and pushing the button. Those attacks are always organized terrorism. Always there is an organization behind that who's planning that, who's preparing that, executing that. It could be at the end of the day that there is one individual who conduct the attack, but this is organized terrorism and not lone wolf attack. Now, when we are talking about the rationale behind it, uh, the best news I can give you today, that based on my experience on counterterrorism, I'm in this field more than 35 years, and I can tell you that based on my experience, and I'm generalizing here, terrorists are rational actors. Now, what does this mean? It means that terrorists in general are calculating costs and benefits and choosing the alternative 
which they believe is more beneficial than costly. That's what rational people do. That's what you do every day. That's what I do every day. That's what the terrorists are doing. But they have a different cost-benefit calculation than we have in the Western society and in other places. So they have the subjective calculus of cost and benefit. A good counterterrorism expert needs to understand need to take out his own considerations, his own, own cost-benefit calculation, and put the, uh, on his head the uh, um, counterpart, the enemy uh, uh, calculation, cost-benefit calculation. And the bad news is that practically there is no one generic terrorist calculation. The calculation, the cost-benefit calculation of uh, ISIS is different than Al-Qaeda, is different than uh, Hamas, is different than Hezbollah. And actually, even within the organization, you could see that the considerations of ISIS today are different than the considerations that they used to have a year ago, or probably will be different again in one year time. The real bad news that I have is that when we are talking about lone wolves, it's much more difficult to understand the rationale because it's a rationale of an individual and not of a group or a, a, an ideological concept. I want to show you four pictures that have been taken in Israel uh, in which the common denominator are four lone wolves that have just been arrested after stabbing uh, people in the streets, in Jerusalem and other places altogether. They are being handcuffed and being escorted to the uh, a police car. Probably they are going to spend life in jail time. That's the common denominator. But there is another common denominator, and you would see it immediately in the pictures. The other common denominator is the smile on the face. This is not a coincidence. Uh, you know, I've, I've just uh, uh, visited uh, uh, Chinatown yesterday uh, in New York, and there was an arrest in front of my face. The NYPD arrested the criminal there. He didn't smile. He was walking to, uh, to the police car, handcuffed. He didn't smile, but they're smiling. And they're smiling because I would argue this is a reflection of their calculus of cost-benefit. What they believe is that what they did right now, although they're going to pay a high price, they will spend life in prison probably, but they did the honorable thing to do. They did something which is more beneficial than costly from their point of view. This is our task the counterterrorism experts, to crack down the smile, to understand this calculus, and then maybe to have counter-narrative, counter-messages, and so on and so forth. By the way, I use the term jihadi zombies in order to explain this concept. Why? Just because, one, like, two reasons. The first reason, youngsters understand what zombies are. And second, the term zombies doesn't have any shred of, of honor. And I want to take this concept of the honorable thing to do from them. You would see in the, in the other example another zombie, jihadi zombie, in, uh, next to my campus in Israel, actually stabbing every person e that is waiting in a public bus stop altogether. That's jihadi zombie. But uh, it's not just Israel. This is a jihadi zombie that was uh, conducted an attack in London, killing uh, Lee Rigby in the, sub in the suburbs of, uh, of London, and not running away, actually covering his head his hands with the blood of the victims and preaching to every person who's ready to take a video clip about his uh, reasons behind it and so on and so forth. Also United States. This is the case of uh, uh, Zale Thompson in 2014, that uh, Afro-American that converted to Islam and went to uh, uh, wage jihad uh, against NYPD officers. By the way, uh, in a nutshell, one new phenomenon that we see is a growing threat of lone wolves, actually radicalized uh, Islamist terrorists, which are converts. Uh, the, the guy from Manchester was uh, a convert. We had other cases of converts, including in Israel, by the way, uh, Jews that converted to Islam. It's probably very much easier to radicalize a person who is uh, becoming a newcomer in this, uh, in this religion. Last but not least, and I would... Uh, limit myself. I said at the beginning that we used to believe that intelligence is useless in reference uh, to dealing with uh, lone wolf attackers because uh, the secret kept in their mind. Well, we were wrong. Instead of human and comment, human sources and communication sources intelligence, we have found that we have the ability to understand what's going, maybe even to predict what's going to happen based on OSINT. 
open sources intelligence. The, the writing is on the wall, on the wall of the Facebook, of Telegram, of Instagram, you name it. And what we see that many of those activists actually give a prior warning because they want to brag about it, because they do the honorable thing to do, and they want that the people will believe that what they did, it's the honorable thing to do, and therefore they are sharing that over the social networks. This is one example of, uh, of a lone wolf in Israel who's saying, in the name of Allah, the merciful and compassionate of Allah, today I decided to achieve Shuada, I decided to become a martyr. That's a warning uh, in this regard, and of course tutorials are being uh, uh, conducted. The attack in Berlin is an outcome of the understanding of the attacker. Uh, the lesson learned from the attack that occurred before the, uh, the random in Nice, after ISIS actually published exactly what should be done if you want really to conduct a, an effective random activity. After the attack, they are becoming uh, a, a model of imitations. And what we see practically is a very vicious cycle, and I will conclude with that, starting with the incitement coming from the terrorist organization, moving on or being processed as in a radicalization process with the individual, then he decides to do something about it. He's planning the attack before conducting the attack. In many cases, he justified it, published a political platform. And then after the attack, he become a model of imitation, which is a fertilizer for further incitement. And at the end of the day, this is epidemic, becoming an epidemic phenomenon. The good news, I want to, to end with the good news, is that it's, it's transparent and practically counter-terrorists can watch that, understand that, analyze that, and maybe even prevent that. That was Boaz Ganor. And now we'll hear from Bruce Hoffman. He's a professor in Georgetown University's Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, where he directs the Center for Security Studies and the Security Studies Program. Let me focus my remarks a bit more and talk about ISIS or the Islamic State or um, ISIL and start with a, with a very broad observation uh, that I think Boaz would agree with me, and I see uh, many people in the audience who I've known for many decades in the counterterrorism world, and I dare say that they would as well. But at the risk of stating the obvious, I think one of the pathologies of both the study of terrorism and counterterrorism is a collective amnesia, or almost a very short memory. I mean, this isn't that surprising. It's the tyranny of the inbox, uh, the daily deluge of threats that one has to contend with. But one of the problems or challenges is that it often crowds out any historical perspective. So in that respect, let me read you a quote and think, think about who would have said this and when would it have been said. Tracking down Americans and the Jews is not impossible. Killing them with a single bullet a stab or a device made up of a popular mix of explosives, or hitting them with an iron rod is not impossible. Burning down their property with Molotov cocktails is not difficult. With the available means, small groups could prove to be a frightening horror for the Americans and the Jews. Any takers? Anybody want to guess? Ayman al-Zawahiri in Nights Under the Prophet's Banner. Uh, released in December 2001. So even as then the deputy leader of al-Qaeda, today the current leader of al-Qaeda, was on the run from perhaps the greatest onslaught ever directed against a terrorist group in history, Operation Enduring Freedom, nonetheless had time to write this, um, this statement that was designed to resurrect al-Qaeda and carry on the struggle. Now, the only problem was is that it completely fell on deaf ears. The phenomena of lone wolf terrorism did not materialize until over a decade later with the rise of ISIS. And then we have the statement of Muhammad al-Adnani from September 2014, the late um, deputy commander or senior official, um, operational planner, propagandist uh, par excellence of ISIS. And his words were almost remarkably similar to Zawahiri's. If you are not able to find an IED or a bullet, then single out the disbelieving American, Frenchman, or any of their allies. Smash his head with a rock, or slaughter him with a knife, or run him over in your car, or throw him down from a high place, or choke him, or poison him. It's precisely ISIS's innovative, revolutionary use of social media that has transformed both the nature of terrorism in a remarkably short span of time, but also empowered this group in less than three years to have become one of the most challenging, 
threats we faced, and one of the most, I would argue, as we'll see, durable terrorist organizations. You don't have that ability to be revolutionary and innovative and then fade from the scene because of the loss of a couple of cities. So one way or the other, I would argue, ISIS is here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future. And one of the main reasons for that has been their ability to harness and exploit social media and to summon this broad universe of lone wolves in addition to the more professional terrorists. There's another point, I think, where ISIS, unfortunately, has been enormously innovative, which will have more immediate consequences for us in years to come. Uh, the 9-11 model of terrorism, the attacks from September 11, 2001, involved professional terrorists trained overseas, deployed um, against their target, operating under a very clear hierarchy, command and control structure with very strict operational orders. So that was the traditional model of terrorism. Of course, the lone wolf model that Boaz has just so uh, brilliantly described challenges law enforcement and, and authorities in a completely different way. Lone, lone wolves have no tails, as it were. There's no logistical tail to interdict. They're much more harder to predict. Fortunately, as Boaz pointed out, their violence is more limited. But nonetheless, their ability to overwhelm, preoccupy, and distract law enforcement and intelligence and security services is enormous. And yet, what we see is that the most formidable terrorist organizations are also the ones that are most innovative and most dynamic, unfortunately, like ISIS. Because ISIS has now, in recent months, pioneered yet a third variant that goes from the traditional, very top-down form of terrorism, the 9-11 model, let's say, to the bottom-up form of terrorism, the lone wolf. Now they have the hybrid, which will, I would argue, present new and very serious challenges to law enforcement and intelligence. This is the new hybrid of enablers that take advantage of lone wolves, of individuals that have no prior connection to a terrorist organization, that may never have met a terrorist in their life, may never have left even their own community to go be trained overseas or anywhere else in terrorism, but nonetheless, as we've seen in recent years, who are manipulated, exploited, ultimately inspired and animated to commit acts of violence in support of or on behalf of a terrorist organization's aims. The new twist now is that these terrorist organizations are providing these individuals with very specific, often very detailed intelligence and targeting instructions, thus empowering them, thus making the lone wolf even more of a threat than they've been um, to date. This new emergence of a, of a different challenge was brought home to me, at least, last March when ISIS released a hit list, I mean, or a targeting list of some 8,000 names of Americans from around the country, uh, when I attempted to print it out, admittedly it wasn't formatted terribly well, but nonetheless it ran to about 425 pages. It had the names of individuals, both their work and home addresses. People who live in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area will recognize some of the addresses of the suburban uh, facilities of U.S. intelligence agencies. Um, email addresses, sometimes mobile phone numbers. But in other words, this was a hit list or a target list that ISIS at least meant, firstly, to sow a certain amount of psychological discord, uh, create alarm and anxiety, which is always the goal of terrorism, but also further encourage and, in essence, plus up, enhance the power of the, of, of the lone wolves. So consequently, ISIS has changed the nature of terrorism in a very short span of time, which I think means that it's not going to disappear or fade from the scene anytime soon. The fundamental challenges facing law enforcement, intelligence agencies, and security services today, not just in the United States, but I would argue around the world, is not to be overwhelmed by the threat of lone wolves, not to be deluded into focusing exclusively on any one threat, not to be distracted by the low-hanging fruit of unpro comparatively unprofessional lone wolves, but to also pay serious attention to the entire spectrum of terrorist threats, including those coming from more professional, better organized, planned, the traditional form of terrorism, in other words. This may sound like a truism, of course, but I would argue this was precisely the trap that the French fell into in 2015. The intense focus on lone wolves that was imposed on French authorities by just the proliferation of the number of individuals whom they had to track, whom they had to monitor, and the degradation 
to their abilities because of the focus on one particular segment of the threat led perhaps tragically to a lowering of the guard and to the successful simultaneous uh, suicide attacks that we, that we saw. So in conclusion, therefore, at a time of comparatively diminishing resources, at a time after a decade plus, decade and a half plus of the war on terrorism, when political will has been reduced, when our collective governments and countries are sapped by this ongoing war, what we see is a multiplication of new and even more challenging threats that means we can never let down our guard. That was Bruce Hoffman. Next, we'll hear from Marlene Mazel. She's an adjunct scholar at the Washington Institute on academic leave from her position as director of the Counterterrorism Litigation Division in the Israeli Ministry of Justice. I'm speaking today, as, a, as a Matt mentioned, I work in the Ministry of Justice, and I have the privilege of being on academic leave this summer. So I'm speaking today in my personal capacity. And what I'm going to be looking at is one little small slice of this discussion that we were having about lone wolves and stabbing attacks in Israel committed by youth. So recently, the EU came out with a terrorism trend report, and it identified a recent trend. It came up with 14 trends, and trend number 10 is that youth are playing an increasingly independent operational role in committing terrorist attacks in EU countries. So my contribution to today's panel is to preview some very preliminary research that I started to work on in Israel, and I'm continuing here in the Institute. And I said it's a very small issue. What I was interested in studying was did the PA and Fatah leadership take acts to glorify the terrorist acts of specific youth? And if they did, did that play a role in encouraging further youth to engage in further violence. So in Israel, this issue came up in October of 2015. In 2015, October alone, there were 59 terrorist attacks. 17 of those terrorist attacks were committed by youth, nearly a third. And in October, I recall living in Israel, there was a raging debate that erupted in the media. What was causing this new wave of violent terror attacks by youth? or in general, but in particular by youth, was very troubling. Some were of the view that it was a statement of Mahmoud Abbas, chairman of the PA, that he made in an interview on Palestinian television on September 16th. And I quote, he said, we welcome every drop of blood spilled in Jerusalem. This is pure blood, clean blood, blood on its way to Allah. With the help of Allah, every shaheed will reach paradise, and every wounded will be rewarded by Allah. His words were widely disseminated in the media. And some credited these words for inspiring the violent stabbing attacks that began two weeks later in October. Others took a different view. They said, no, these terrorists, including the youth, they were lone wolves. They were angry at the occupation. They were frustrated after peace talks broke down. One Palestinian poll that was taken in September 2015 said that 57% of those polled supported the return to an armed intifada. And other experts opined that it was really a complex combination of both of these factors. So what I was looking at, what kind of sparked my interest, was what was actually happening on the ground. How many youth were committing attacks? And, we, and I started to study the specific attacks committed. And what you can see here that we found a very troubling number. There are 105 attacks that were committed by youth, their ages between 11 to 17. And then when we quantified attacks, we quantified violent attacks. I'll get into that in a minute. We, we took out information on rocks and Molotov cocktails because we were trying to really study this specific new phenomenon of stabbings with knives. So then there was a question that I was looking at. Well, what's the percentage? What's the percentage of the 105 of the overall attacks committed during the time period? And the statistics thus far that I found is it between a quarter and a half of all the attacks that were committed at the time. So clearly, there was a dramatic increase in the stabbing attacks of youth. And the research that I've been conducting has tried to answer three different questions. Number one, why? Why? Why were these Palestinian youth engaging in violent stabbing and terror attacks? Number two, is there a connection between actions of the PA Fatah leadership glorifying the specific acts of the youth and encouraging further attacks? And three, if we find that a, co a correlation does exist, are there lessons that can be learned about the radicalization and incitement? So the data that we found thus far is that we found that there were four 11 and 12-year-olds, five 13-year-olds, 59 14 through 16-year-olds, and 29 17-year-olds. 
And you can see on the right pie chart, the vast majority of the attacks uh, were, were stabbing attacks using knives. So the next question we were looking at was really very specific. We were looking at specific glorification of the acts of the youth by the Palestinian Authority and Fatah. So what we did, we're looking for public source information because the information had to reach the youth. We looked at Arabic, English, Hebrew websites, all different types of information, TV, different aspects, to identify whether the PA and Fatah were taking actions to glorify the specific youth. Now what we did, simple, we took the names of all the youth, we ran it through all these databases to see if we could find um, acts of glorification. Now let me just be clear, because it's a very specific study of things that we didn't include. Uh, in the study, which I think I might continue to include or look at over the summer, we did not include examples of general glorification. Um, for example, there was a report that was issued um, by Palestinian Media Watch on PA education that was issued during this year in July 2015. They found that educational institutions were teaching hate and praising terrorists, including youth who kill civilians and, and depict them as heroes and martyrs, which might have a different kind of, as Boaz was saying, that might have a different influence on their thinking as to, as to evaluation of what's important. The other thing that we did include were general statements of praise of youth. So if there were general statements by the PAM Fatah praising the actions of youth in general, those are not reflected in the data thus far. We just reflected specific actions on specific youth that committed the terrorist attacks. And at the same time, just to be clear, to give a fuller picture of what was going on, there were statements made by the PAM Fatah that repudiated terrorism. The study, though, wanted to focus on whether the actions were consistent with these statements. There was also, during this time period, significant security cooperation between the PA and Israel, which was very, very important and very helpful in thwarting terrorist attacks, including terrorist attacks by youth. And at the same time, as, as Boaz was discussing and Bruce, there were many other factors of information that was released and that was available to the youth that were exposed to information by Hamas, by ISIL. There were social media accounts that were opened at the time. One was called Stab. Another one was called Slaughter the Jews. There were many different accounts, and it's quite horrifying when you see them of little toddlers holding knives. Um, and there were also instructional videos that were issued by terrorist organizations about how to kill a Jew using a knife. So there were many aspects of information that could be influencing youth that are part of many other studies. We were looking at the very specific question of whether there were acts of the Palestinian Authority and Pata leadership on specific acts of the children. So this is what we found. There were. There were, in fact, acts of, of glorification by the PA. We found over 25 specific acts. What kind of information were we seeing? We were seeing actions such as giving the youth, uh, the youth terrorists an official military funeral, publishing flyers, official flyers that condone the, the youth as a martyr, and paying condolence visits to the families. So here we have two examples of what that actually looks like. One, this is a flyer of Adladin Abush Khadim, 17 years old. You can see the official symbols to the left and right of his Arafat on the right and the symbol of Fatsaf on the left. And it says here, with pride and honor, the national liberation movement of the Palestinian people, Fatah, Central Hebron branch, Old City, eulogized its brave Shaheed, Adladin Abu Shahadim. And he was responsible for, for being involved in a stabbing attack um, that injured a soldier at the Gushatun. Junction. And here's another example of a, both of a military funeral of Al-Abad Kawasabi. That was one of our cases that we looked at where he was given a formal military funeral. And in the, on the bottom, you see a flyer of three, of three uh, terrorists at the time. One of them is him. And the third statement on the bottom reflects his name also being praised um, through the official channels. So the next question that we were looking at, well, is there a correlation? All right. So we saw that there were specific acts of glorification which was troubling, um, because it's not what you would, it's not what you would want to see um, in this context. So then we were looking at, well, was there a correlation? Was there any correlation between the numbers of attacks glorifying the acts of the specific children and the commission of attacks or additional attacks? And the preliminary results were fascinating. So you'll see here on top the acts of glorification, and you can see next the terrorist attacks by youth. And what we can see so far, and I said it's preliminary data, there seems to be a correlation between statements of, of glorification and the number of terror attacks that were committed. So you can see there were many more attacks committed between October and March. And there seems to be a sharp drop. If you see the, starting April, 
towards the end to September 2016, a dramatic drop both in the acts of glorification and in the ensuing or in the terrorist attacks that were committed by youth. Now, I'm not really sure what it means at this stage. There could have been many environmental factors that had nothing to do with the glorification and that there isn't a correlation necessarily at all. I mean, we definitely did not find, the data did not, at least the data that I was looking at so far, did not show causation. You couldn't say that there was a specific statement of glorification of the PA Infante that caused a specific response by the youth. That would be much more complex, as Boas was saying, and interviewing and, and, and trying to collect much more data from different sources. There was one example in the study of the 105, a 15-year-old Murad Badr Abdullah Das. When she was interviewed, she was a murdered Daphne Meir, 38-year-old mother of six, on January 17th. She explained during her questioning that she was influencing general by, t by Palestinian television, which had a big influence on him, um, and that his decision to carry out the attack. So that was, you know, not an example of direct causation, just one individual who felt that they were influenced by what they saw on television. So I started to interview different experts, showing them the chart, saying, what do you think? Um, is there a correlation? What could be the reason for this dramatic drop? This is what I've some views that I've heard so far that I thought I would share. Some experts were of the view that it was actually the upcoming report of the Middle East Quartet that was due at the time that was going to address the issue of incitement, and that led to, um, that led to a decrease, uh, understanding that the report would be released. Others were of the view that Palestinian society and individuals in the society were very upset that their youth were engaging in violent attacks, and numerous measures were taken by the PA in, in various different angles, including to the reduction of glorification, in order to actively discourage youth from these attacks. Some experts who know about Israeli counterterrorism efforts thought that it was the Israeli counterterrorism efforts, some of what Boaz described, different measures that were taken um, through different types of open source intelligence information um, in order to identify attacks before they occurred um, and to prevent them. And people who understand all those three issues, some of them said it was a combination of all of the above. So in any event, it does seem very interesting. It seems interesting in terms of two factors. If you actually could quantify what's the relevant input or influence of one form of, of glorification or incitement, that might be helpful to counterterrorism study efforts. And as Boas and, and Bruce were both discussing, it's also important to look at the cumulative impact on the particular youth of all the different areas of incitement or influence that might be then um, encouraging uh, youth to act. Also because perhaps if you could find out what was encouraging them, you could find out how to discourage them, stop the attacks, and that might be equally helpful to the counterterrorism efforts. That was Marlene Mazel. Next, we'll hear from Matthew Levitt. He's the Fromer Wexler Fellow and Director of the Washington Institute's Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. I like to go last so that when all the good stuff is taken, I can come up with a few short nuggets and then open up to Q&A. So we'll do that today. And we'll start with, with maybe, I guess you'd call it a mea culpa, because there are many of you who have sat in these chairs before and have heard me speak at this podium before, and I'm sure there's at least one or two of you who are really keen to hear what I'm going to say about the nature of lone wolf attacks, given that I've stood here in the past and said that uh, the lone wolf uh, idea is really largely a misnomer. And I think that when I said that at this podium, uh, including once uh, at a, at a uh, an event together with Bruce uh, back in November, uh, when I wrote this in, in two different foreign policy pieces in uh, September of last year and March of last year, I, I, I don't think I was wrong. But of course, counterterrorism is, is not static. And when the Islamic State was still remaining and expanding, to use its own terminology, and then maybe even more so when it was a little bit on its back heels and really sought to actively send uh, uh, returning foreign fighters back home to Europe or elsewhere uh, to direct and where it couldn't maybe just enable, as Bruce discussed, uh, terrorist attacks that really would be maybe carried out by a lone individual, maybe a lone attack, maybe a lone offender, but not really a lone wolf, not really someone operating on his or, let's be clear, her uh, own. In fact, the uh, Europol counterterrorism report that Marlene mentioned specifically raises concerns about the increase not only in the number of attacks overall, not only in the number of inspired attacks overall, but in particular about the number of attacks involving women as one of these uh, new trends. And I think we can look back at uh, Muhammad al-Adnani's speech in September 2014 and then 
more recently, uh, not long before he was killed in May 2016, very specifically calling on people, if you can't come here, at least do things where you are, um, as examples of the way in which um, the Islamic State proactively tried to play on the uh, situations in which at-risk uh, individuals, mostly youth, found themselves, but then to provide people with some type of capability. Um, so at the time, I felt uh, that the era of the lone wolf was largely over because what we were seeing at the time was more known wolves than lone wolves, people who were on the radar of law enforcement in one way or another. They weren't completely unknown, and they were having some type of connective tissue to an organized group, even if they weren't originally recruited by that group or armed by that group. Maybe the only way you could really draw the line is through kind of further radicalization and maybe, in some cases, uh, the provision of some intelligence um, to be able to carry out the attack. Uh, but what we're seeing now, at a time when the caliphate is not just on its back heels, but is about to be destroyed, uh, is something a little different. And we're seeing a desire on the part of the Islamic State to be able to perpetuate itself as an idea beyond the existence of its caliphate as a state uh, as such. We're also seeing several other phenomena. On the one hand, the caliphate is about to end as such. But the caliphate genie is out of the bottle. And for those people, wherever they are in the West, let's say, who have grievances and who uh, are reading the online propaganda, their memory, as I think it was uh, Bruce who said, their memory will be short-lived. And one of the radicalization um, messages that we're sure to start seeing, if it's not out there already, is there was a caliphate. It wasn't perfect. We made mistakes, but there was a caliphate, and all we really wanted to do was to be left alone, to live Sharia-compliant lives, but no, the West wouldn't have that, and therefore it was destroyed. If only we had been allowed to progress, we would have become less brutal, we would have become more normal. In other words, the idea that there was recently a caliphate, not hundreds or thousands of years ago, but recently a caliphate that did exist whether or not the fact that it was rejected by the vast majority of Muslims who did not see this as a caliphate nor Baghdadi as a caliph is going to be irrelevant to some of these individuals who will be drawn to this message. And they'll be drawn to this message through a medium that still exists. Social media is able to penetrate every border into the basement of every home. And people who have problems are still going to be drawn to these issues. And I would argue that the grievances that have led people to be attracted to and to have the cognitive opening for radical messages is, in fact, if anything, on the rise. Um, Europeans have let in many refugees, many migrants, but they haven't done a particularly good job of um, uh, enabling them to uh, acculturate into society. There are a lot of different ways in which uh, this is a set of grievances that's likely to expand. And so if you look just at the past few months, you can see groups trying to kind of rebuild uh, a new kind of um, propaganda specifically about the lone wolves. I should um, stress that, as Bruce noted, the idea is not new. When Ayman al-Zawahiri, as the deputy chief of al-Qaeda, raised it, no one was listening at the time. But over time, people did start to listen. You might recall the online ebook published in 2015, How to Survive in the West, a Mujahid Guide. You may recall that uh, Rahimi, the bomber um, in New York and New Jersey, uh, appears to have been inspired not by the Islamic State, but by Anwar Awlaki, who has proven to be at least as magnetic a radicalizer in death as he was in life. But let's just look over the past few months. Just this month, an Islamic State ebook was released uh, to homeschool lone wolves, uh, as they put it. The Lone Wolf Handbook, written in Turkish, disseminated on Telegram. In, uh, in, uh, in June, uh, Nashir, uh, related to the Islamic State, um, Al-Batar distributed a video. Uh, noting attacks in Melbourne, etc., and specifically calling for attacks in Australia, America, Canada, Europe, uh, and Russia. And, uh, of course, there was the Rumia, the ninth volume of Rumia, released 
in May uh, with this large section called Just Terror Tactics on Hostage Taking with uh, details on how to – sections on hostage taking – uh, on how to carry out uh, acts of violence armed with a firearm, how to acquire firearms, what might be the ideal types of targets for these attacks, how to execute people, what to do if you don't have a firearm, etc., how to lure a target, for example, uh, post in an online um, a site that you have an apartment to rent, lure people to the apartment, uh, and then kill them, something that uh, Israeli security has had to deal with over the years, etc. And I should note that... Um, uh, much like the case of Rahimi, who was radicalized by uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, we need to be aware that this same phenomenon, it might not have uh, caught on and had momentum when Zawahiri claimed it uh, shortly after 9-11, but it certainly is now. Uh, there is a um, uh, 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 competition between the remains of the Islamic State and al-Qaeda, which is causing al-Qaeda to try and pick up its game, uh, Al-Qaeda is very much, uh, I believe, uh, on the rise. Uh, the Washington Institute just uh, uh, led a research uh, and produced a volume edited by my colleague Aaron Zellin on uh, how Al-Qaeda has survived the rise of the Islamic State, the Arab Springs, etc. And Al-Qaeda also has now begun to reintroduce uh, the magazine Inspire, a shorter version called Inspire Guide, very specifically on people who succeeded in carrying out attacks, including lone offender attacks and how you can do the same. And I think we need to, as Bruce said, not be so caught up in one part of the threat that we don't see the others. Uh, the al-Qaeda threat is very, very serious. And then I think it's important to look at the recent Europol report, which talked about that spectrum of inspired, enabled, and directed plots. And when it comes to those who are inspired and are lone offenders, they write that these are individual attackers, possibly but not necessarily being helped by family and or friends as accomplices. They're inspired by jihadist propaganda messaging, but not necessarily receiving personal direction or instruction from any group. And that should echo what you heard just now uh, from Boaz. And I think we need to recognize um, that even as we have success in the battlefield against the Islamic State, the radicalization process is not uh, linear. You can have someone who is radicalized and maybe gets de-radicalized or maybe it's better way to put it is disengages from radicalism, but then events can happen and that person can be radicalized uh, again. And when you have social media avail available 24-7, messages can change, messages can be updated, people can be radicalized again. I'm of the opinion that so long as our strategy in Syria, our counterterrorism strategy in Syria is all and only about the Islamic State, and we're not paying particular attention to al-Qaeda, say, in Idlib. We're not paying almost any attention to a guy whose name maybe some have forgotten, I don't know, named Bashar al-Assad, that the same ideas that caused foreign terrorist fighters in the first place will still be there. There were foreign terrorist fighters going to Syria before there was Nusra, before there was ISIL, and there will still be even if we dismantle the Islamic State. And I'm drawn to a recent national counterterrorism study um, on the likelihood that U.S. homegrown violent extremism will experience recidivism. And they mentioned many cases in the report, and we need to take this to heart. There will be recidivism in terms of the people who return to radicalization, and that means the likelihood of still more individuals acting on their own. I'm still not in love with the term lone wolves. It sort of uh, creates them out to be big and powerful, maybe even honorable, as Boaz said. Uh, they're not really wolves at all. If they're truly lone wolves, then they've broken from the pack and they have no connective tissue whatsoever from the group, which I would argue would have to include inspiration, and that definitely exists. But the problem of lone offenders, or as the Europol report puts it, of lone attackers, is very real. And while the Israelis have done some really really interesting and effective work in being able to mine social media postings, not everybody is posting on the social media. And even when they are, we're not always able, especially in a country the size of the United States as opposed to Israel, able to mine that data in a timely manner. And the biggest concern, therefore, isn't just the issue of encryption when you get to the inability to follow those messages that still exist between people who are part of a group, 
The problem is also that people can be radicalized. People are radicalized today so quickly. It's not like, you know, when I started my career in counterterrorism in the FBI in the 1990s and there was, there was a lead time. The flash to bang, the period of time between radicalization and mobilization can be very, very, very quick, days or even hours. And that doesn't leave law enforcement or intelligence a whole lot of leeway or much of a window to be able to catch on to what could happen very, very quickly. And when you're talking about doing something as simple as picking up a knife or getting in a car, or in this country, let's be honest, it's not difficult to get your hands on a handgun. Then we are talking about the very strong likelihood that as we move forward, as the Islamic State continues to crumble, what I said last year will no longer be true or will not only be true. That is to say, it will still be the case that we will have enabled and even directed plots. In the near term, those directed plots are likely to increase as the Islamic State collapses. Again, the Europol report in particular specifically says that there is data, intelligence, and there is concern about the Islamic State now trying to infiltrate operatives, trained operatives to the West to be able to do things right now as they are collapsing at home. But moving beyond that, or I should say actually in parallel to that, at the same time as that, the likelihood that individuals will try and carry things out on their own, I think, increases. And that means that the nature of the threat will be more than just ISIS or al-Qaeda. It won't only be organized. It will also be something else. And that's going to be much more difficult for us to tackle, even if, as you've heard, the attacks that they may be successful in carrying out are likely to be much less lethal. But a few people killed or wounded, a bunch of people killed and wounded is horrible. And the terrifying effect, the terroristic effect that it will have on society and on, e on the economy would be significant. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.